0: Doo doo doo, it's that time, don't you know? It's uh it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon out there, you gotta admit, man. But if you got your radio on, you're in the right place. Welcome, disability law show. John Skull's here along with James Fireman, partner, Sam to Tamarkin LLP, and Tamara Gopian, partner, Sam to Tamarkin LLP. Both of them ready to rock and or roll. Answer all of your questions today. The uh, the most Google positively reviewed uh, law firm in the country. At any time, we're not doing this hour of radio. Here's how you get a hold of the guys. 1-855-821-5900. And you want to go to help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll give you some more contact throughout the show as we uh, work our way through the hour. You're also invited to be the fourth voice on air. Do it. 416-872-1010. You can text your question to 71010 if you have questions about dealing with a long-term disability insurer, maybe you've been cut off, told you're going to get cut off in the next few weeks or months, or maybe told to appeal after being cut off. It's uh it's a mess. I know. It's tough to navigate. So that's why you want to make that phone call here this afternoon and get some answers. Part of the conversation, right? Ton of emails to get through, guys. But I think, James, we always start off with the, uh, the week that was. Brother, how are you doing?
1: Oh, live in the dream, my friend. That's it. So I had an interesting conversation yesterday that reminded me, or at least gave me some perspective or better (laughs) perspective on our listeners. So I had the opportunity to sit down and play some cards with some very old friends, and it's actually the first time since before the pandemic. So I was very happy to get together again and talk about old times and get updates on what everyone's doing. And I got some good natured ribbing from my friends on the TV <laughs> show and the radio show, as you might expect. And uh, one of my friends, who uh, acknowledged that he is a regular listener and sometimes viewer of the TV show, which caught me a little by surprise because he does not himself have a disability. And so I asked him why. And of course, he tells me it's because he is in a senior management position and you know, deals with employees that go on disability. And so from his perspective, it's relevant for him in terms of dealing with short-term disability, which is an issue for him, as well as the interplay between LTD and employment issues that come up when someone's been on LTD for an extended period of time, and of course, he then made the comment. He he said, uh, "We'll call him Darnell." He said that uh, he re- he thinks it's really good, but a little nauseating, <laughs> which I took nice. which I took as a tremendous compliment. But I, I think what he was getting at is um, some frustration on his end with uh, people who he thought perhaps did not have legitimate claims that were trying to go on LTV. and that's pretty understandable. Uh, and so it reflected to me that it's perhaps useful for me to give some context to what we do, because when we're talking on air about these situations that have come up or, where people are writing in and we're talking about their issues, it's almost always a situation where the insurer has done something really egregious where uh, it is a an issue that we can help with and someone who's got a very significant disability is going to be entitled to those benefits. But that is certainly not every person that calls our law firm or even into the show. There are certainly many people who contact us who we do not wind up being retained by. And it could be for any number of reasons. It could be that they're just calling early in the process and they're not at a point where they need to hire us yet. Or, as in many cases, they have what they hope is going to be a legitimate claim. But after we talk to them, we discover that no, it probably isn't there and the insurer has acted appropriately. And so, you know, that does happen all the time. And so, If you are out there and listening, keep this in mind. Certainly, you know we act for we act for plaintiffs. So we we act for employees who are seeking to get long-term disability either reinstated or approved by their insurer. But that doesn't mean that anybody who calls us we're going to get represented. We have no interest in taking on claims that aren't legitimate. We're only going to represent people who have the full support of their medical team and are not able to work because of a medical disability. It is a waste of our time to try and bring a claim for someone who doesn't have a legitimate issue. But if you do, if you do have a legitimate medical issue that is preventing you from work, from working, you better believe that if you want to go ahead with it, you're going to have the full weight of our entire disability team behind you. And so that's really what I wanted to make clear here is it's not as though we're here to just represent anybody who says that the insurance company should give them money. There is a threshold and it's higher than you might think. We are not going to take on cases that aren't legitimate for sure. But if you do want to find out, please give us a call because we're happy to discuss it with you. And if there is a claim there, if there's a valid basis for a claim, we are absolutely happy to represent someone who has le- who has a legitimate disability but has been denied by the insurance.
0: And, guys, to reach out, as James mentioned, David, if it's for a conversation, just you know, don't hesitate. Get right in there. It's 1 821 5900. You can also ask questions at a free website, which is anonymous, by the way. That would be my mydisabilityquestions.com. But, guys, want to get into our uh, our stuff for the day? we got so many emails and questions to get through. I know you guys are uh, champing at the bit to do exactly that. I think the first one up is going to be Walter says, uh, Hey, guys, I've been a welder for the last 35 years. I've been off work since 2020 with back issues. My My family doctor sent me to an orthopedic surgeon doctor who uh, was my only option for treatment is spinal fusion. But he also told me there's no guarantee it will improve things. And even if it does, I likely won't be able to return to work. I can't do much of anything because I have to keep changing positions every 10 minutes. And then I have to lie down for two to three hours, at least twice a day just to make it through. But my claims manager is now saying my benefits are getting cut off in November because I can do other jobs. I'm 58 years old and I didn't finish high school. Even if I could sit for long enough to do something, I'd have no idea what to do. Are they allowed to do this?
2: I'm going to jump in here because this is is the thing about, you know, James's opening salvo. and, And I can understand I get similar comments from other people in my world outside of the disability realm saying, hey, look, you know, what is it that you guys do? Why is it that you do it? It's for this reason because we consistently see this kind of thing from individuals like Walter and others, where you look at the facts and on paper, I just don't understand what how the insurer can get around approving a disability claim like this until Walter turns sixty five, and so can they? Are they allowed to do this? That's Walter's question and look, I mean, they, the insurance companies are the ones who draft the disability policies. And I think that that one way, one sided approach to how these policies are drafted are what get my, it gets my blood boiling. This is what frustrates me. And perhaps I am nauseating every week when I talk about it, (laughs) but, but, but I do come at it from a certain lens. And I am open with individuals that I speak with that I do have a little bit of an inherent bias as it relates to how I analyze these disability claims for this exact reason. And so let's get into the weeds about Walter's situation, why it is that the insurers do what they do. And it is because they have prescribed in their policies fairly consistently, that after two years of benefits where you are approved and paid for benefits on the basis that you're totally disabled from doing the job that you were doing at the time that you became disabled, so in Walter's situation, that's, you know, he's not able to be a welder as a result of his back issues, and it certainly sounds like the insurance company at least has approved for some period of time that he's not going to return to that job then the test changes though and that's that magic two-year mark 24 months of benefits and then now the insurer is looking at because they they wrote the policy that says they can look at it which which says is there any occupation walter can do anything in the world for which he's got the education and training and experience to do that would put him in a job that would accommodate potentially ongoing restrictions and limitations And that would line him up to earn an income at a level that's commensurate or a level that's typically right around the LTD benefit amount, which we know is usually two thirds of what you're making. So it's no longer, you know, the 100% salary that he was no doubt making, pretty probably a pretty good one as a welder, working in that field for 35 years. It's now, look, can you go out, be accommodated for your back condition and still earn roughly two thirds. And so I think what's frustrating in a situation like this is that has the doctor communicated in writing to the insurance company what Walter has been told by his family doctor or the orthopedic surgeon for that matter, that the only option is fairly aggressive surgery and even then there might not be a good likelihood for sustainable function to return back to any work setting. I think having that opinion communicated and in a way that's meaningful, few paragraphs, not like, you know, one liner kind of thing. And having that put over to the insurance company as part of their analysis, inevitably that they're going to do on the change of definition would be hugely helpful for Walter. Because if there is that medical information, and in the face of that, the insurance company still decides to make the bonkers decision to decline benefits and put walter through this challenge of having to demonstrate that he is in fact totally disabled then i do think that this is the role that we play and and i do feel strongly about it and i don't make any qualms about it whatsoever because i have seen the dirty and the ugly of the insurance side and there's a reason why i have chosen to work for people like Walter, uh, and i talk about it day in day out what do you think james
1: well you know at, at the risk of nauseating my friend darnell uh <laughs> I I have to say, you know, this is a fairly ridiculous denial. Anybody who's going to have to change positions every 10 minutes is just not going to have the endurance right now to be able to do some other job, even if he were qualified, which he probably isn't, and that he needs what is obviously a very significant surgery in the near future suggests that it isn't likely going to change anytime soon. Um, The reality is a change of definition Tends to be well overplayed by insurers. Yes, the test gets a little harder after two years, but it's pretty unusual for it actually to change the outcome, in my view. So I, I don't think this uh, this denial has any basis in reality, and it's certainly something we deal with.
0: It is uh, just about time to take a break, guys. We'll do that before we get into more of your emails. Thank you so much, Walter, for, uh, for reaching out. you want to carry on the conversation? Uh, if you don't know the number, you probably do. But just in case, one 855 821 But uh, for you to reach into the show now and talk to us, you can do so after the break. And for the rest of the hour, four one six eight seven two ten ten 1010 and text 71010 as well. We'll continue the Disability Law Show here on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 120 Saturday afternoon. It's a beauty out there. I mentioned a few different ways for you to get a hold of Tamar and James anytime outside the hour of the show. You can do so. The phone number uh, first, eight two one fifty nine hundred. 821 5900. There's also the option of mydisabilityquestions.com. That website's kind of cool. It's free, it's anonymous, and it allows you to uh, type in your questions under whatever topic and banner under disability law you're wondering. Um, it's searchable, too. That's the way it was put together. So you can search to see if your question has been asked and answered previously. If not, leave it there, and it will. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com, and of course, email help at disabilityrights.ca. Guys, I want to go exactly to that website now, mydisabilityquestions.com. Question is this. I've been on LTD for over 10 years. I have never received an increase for cost of living. Is that normal? Also, I work for a credit union that has merged with another credit union, so my job no longer exists, but I've never been fired or terminated. I never contacted anyone in fear that I would lose my benefits. Should I contact them? And because my employer no longer uh, is my employer no longer, can I be denied, be denied benefits because I don't have a job anymore? So,
1: okay, I always enjoy a nice little two-parter. Yes. Before I an- answer that, though, um, it occurs to me, That my story about my friend Darnell, I should have invited anyone who is on the other side, whether they be an employer or dare I say it, even an insurance adjuster that wants to call in. The lines are open and we're happy to talk to anyone who's got an issue that's relevant to uh, the people who are listening. So by all means. Um, you know, while we only represent uh, people who are bringing claims, we're happy to talk to anyone on the air. So, getting back to this question on mydisabilityquestions.com. The first part of it is about whether or not they ought to have gotten an increase in their monthly benefit, uh, right, having been on disability for 10 years and have not gotten an increase. And the answer is probably not in your particular case. And I say that only because whether or not you are entitled to that increase is simply a function of the policy that was purchased. Some group policies will have that increase, which is what we refer to as a cost of living adjustment or COLA is the acronym. So some uh, policies will have a COLA, and if they do, the premiums are going to be more expensive. It's just a better policy if the rates are going to go up year over year and you pay more for it. Sometimes the employer will buy that, sometimes they won't. If yours did not, then you're simply not entitled to it. And more often than not, the insurer is uh, certainly going to catch that. There are occasions where they won't implement it or they'll do it improperly, but I don't really find that insurers do that in a systemic way. There are administrative mistakes. And while I'm always happy to point out where insurers have done something wrong, I haven't really noticed any pattern of that with cost of living adjustment. So it's possible that they've missed it in your case, but I doubt it. In terms of the other part of the question, though, uh, what should you do about your employer? Because as the this person has suggested, their job is no longer there. The credit union that they worked for before going on disability 10 years ago has merged with another credit union and so he's wondering what he should do he hasn't been officially terminated yet and the answer is in my view nothing there is nothing to be done unless and until your employer contacts you because if you were to do something about it and if you were to be paid uh, any kind of severance or termination pay most policies, not all, but most policies are going to have a provision that will entitle the insurance company to a full offset for any of that money, or at least up to the amount of the monthly benefit for any time period that you're getting those the termination pay. So the reality is all or at least most of what you get if you were to get termination pay while you're still on disability is really going to go right from the employer through your hands to the insurer. And that's not gonna do you any good. So it's much better to take a hands-off approach and not deal with that unless and until your employer forces the issue. And usually they won't, usually they won't. Um, Tamar certainly has more experience when it comes to the employment law issues. So is there anything that you wanna add to that Tamar?
2: Yeah, thanks James for that. And I of course agree with your approach. That's the advice that I give all of my clients. You know, the question, the core question is, what do I do with my employment while I'm either on disability or pursuing my disability insurer for disability benefits? And the reality is, is that there may be some self-interest in keeping your employment open, so to speak, and not bring your employment to a close, particularly if you're still accessing extended health care benefits, which are tied to your employment. And so, no, the short answer is that your LTD benefits and entitlement to that shouldn't be impacted one way or another, whether you are employed or not employed, which I think is the core of the question as well. And so I don't want people to be worried that, look, one company bought over another and my job doesn't exist. So this must mean my LTD benefits are going to come to an end. Absolutely not. Your disability claim is crystallized for the timeframe in which you were employed and did have coverage with the disability insurer that existed at that time. And by the way, that also <laughs> exists if you were to have your employment terminated while you give, there's a giving rise to a disability claim. So it's a very nuanced analysis, but the long and short of it is, is that unless your your employer is contacting you and needs some updates my advice to my clients is look there's no need for you to put yourself out there with your employer not only will your disability insurer provide you know periodic updates to the employer directly in the absence of that if they need anything they'll contact you And really, most of the time that employers contact individuals is if there is some return to work planning that has to happen. And a lot of the time when people are on disability claims, that return to work planning isn't really happening until there's at least some support from your doctor that this is the right time for you to consider going back to work. So short of all of that... All your employer is really entitled to know is if there is a reasonable likelihood for a return. And if that's in the short term, then they are gonna contact you and they may need some updated medical information from you. But short of that, I think, you know, best to sort of let the employer lead or generate or activate any kind of contact they need from you if they have information that they require.
0: Guys, let's move on to another email. This one, Garth, thank you, Garth. And again, he went to help at disabilityrights.ca to do exactly that. Gar says, uh, my brother's been receiving disability benefits for five years. He struggles with sch- uh, schizoaffective disorder, autism, and agoraphobia. He spends most of his time in his room and rarely leaves our apartment. Even going to his psychiatrist for treatment is a struggle, as is getting his medication. The pandemic made things much worse, and even with things loosening up a bit, it hasn't helped. To make matters worse, he just found out that the insurance company is going to cut him off because they're saying his symptoms are not severe enough to prevent him from working in a warehouse. This was a job he was doing before he went on medical leave. Seems very odd to me that this is happening all of a sudden. They've been paying uh, him for so long and nothing's changed. If anything, he's worse now than what he was before. Why are they doing this?
2: Because they want to bring his benefits to an end. Kind of. That's that's what insurance companies do. That's the whole purpose of it, is they collect the premiums and if there's an opportunity to bring these these disability claims to an end, particularly if they're, you know, of longer duration or very low likelihood to actually resolve, then by all means, if there's an opportunity for them to close it out, they will. What it sounds like, though, is similar to what we talked about at the top of the show, I'm wondering whether there's some kind of change of definition analysis that's being done. And they're saying to your brother that, look, you can work in a warehouse. I don't see how that could possibly be the case if he's still your brother still has challenges in terms of leaving his home and so on, and, and likely under the care. Uh, I think you said a psychiatrist and so on. And so, I I just don't understand how the insurer can say, yeah, you know what, working in a warehouse is a tenable analysis for alternative work. And so this will be interesting to see what the insurance company puts in terms of pen to paper, because they do have to put a denial letter together and they have to explain their analysis. They have to explain as to what medical information they considered, if there was other things they considered. I don't know, maybe some outsider observations, perhaps a paper review, and they have to put that in writing to to Garth's brother and set out, look, this is how we've justified the denial of the claim. I think it would be difficult to justify in a circumstance like this. And I, you know, subject to the medical, I'd have very little hesitation in challenging the insurer if they actually do cut off the claim. But I think this is why it's so important to have the medical information that's current, that's up to date, that details all of these symptoms, ongoing limitations, and provides that unequivocal support that someone cannot work. In the face of that, if the insurance company ignores it, doesn't take it into due consideration, prefers their own paper review, for example, and decides to deny the claim, then they are opening themselves absolutely to a challenge, and I think they'd have a hard time justifying it in front of the eyes of the court.
0: With that, we'll take another short break. This hours whipping by, but it doesn't mean you don't have time to give us a call and chime in and join the show. 416-872-1010-71010 to text in as well. Bad faith damages, punitive damages, all that stuff. We'll break that down, what those are after a short break. As we continue here on the Disability Law Show, right here on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Stand by. Come back indeed. Still got some time. Pick up a phone, join the conversation, get on air and, uh, and talk to us. Ask your questions. 416-872-1010. Uh, we had a caller. Don't know where he went. Hopefully he calls back. 710-10. If you prefer to text in your questions, we can read those on air. If they're on point, as the kids say, email is help at disabilityrights.ca. Guys, I mentioned this before the break as far as these two terms are concerned. What sort of factors, I guess, do you look at or look for when you're assessing your client's claim for things like punitive or bad faith damages? We hear those terms all the time. What does it mean?
1: Sure. So punitive damages is not something that is awarded as compensation. It's awarded as punishment. So the focus when a court is looking at punitive damages is on what the insurance company did that was bad faith, how they acted in bad faith. And what we really mean by that is were they unfair? Was the process fundamentally unfair? That's how a court's really going to look at it. It isn't simply a matter of did they get the adjudication correct or not. Certainly, if they get it correct or not, that is what will determine whether you're actually entitled to the benefits. But they're entitled to make mistakes as long as they are made in good faith. They're entitled to have an opinion that the court may not agree with, but it has to be done fairly. And so when we look at a claim and we look to see, is this claim one where we are likely going to be able to ask for or reasonably expect that a court would award punitive damages? What we're looking for are things like, did they ignore what the treating doctors said? So if the treating doctors are all saying that this person is disabled and they've gone to the relevant specialists and they've gotten all the relevant treatment, and there is very clear evidence that the person is disabled and the insurance company is ignoring it, that is one indication. Going even further, if the insurance company makes their decision without having their claimant assessed, that goes a little bit further. If they do it without even consulting with the doctor, further still. Even more so, if they have gone to some of those steps, let's say an insurance company in fact hired a doctor either to do an assessment or to just consult on the particular case, and the doctor that they hired told them that this person is disabled, well, that is a huge problem for the insurance. If you have treating doctors, and doctors hired by the insurance company all saying that the person is disabled and the insurance company ignores all of the doctors and says no we still say that you're not disabled and you can go back to work you better believe there's exposure in that circumstance so you know there are different degrees it's on a continuum for sure but it is an exceptional award it isn't something that is awarded in all cases by any means what i will say though is while it is an exceptional award We do find that in those long-term disability cases that do reach trial, and they're rare, LTD cases reach trial maybe five, six times a year across the country. But in the cases that do reach trial for long-term disability, it is not so uncommon that we see punitive damages awarded. And my suspicion is that there are a lot more cases out there that punitive damages would be awarded if the case ever reached trial. But the insurers, once there's a claim brought, and once it gets into the hands of their lawyers and adjusters who are in the legal department, recognize that exposure. And it's my experience that they, at that point, come to the table with a whole lot more money than was being offered when it was being adjudicated in the claims department. And we see that time and time again. So, what we look for is really going to be something that more often than not is going to be within that insurance file. And so when someone calls to contact us, we usually don't have enough information at that point in time to be able to make that assessment. That assessment usually comes after we've started the case, um, which is typically being done on the basis of the medical evidence alone, whether or not the person is entitled to benefits. Whether they're entitled to punitive damages is something we learn when we get that insurance file and we go through it. And that is really part of our process. That is something that, in my view, separates the lawyers who have a lot of experience and are really good at this kind of work from the ones that aren't going to get the best results for their clients, the ones who really take the time to go through the insurance file page by page to figure out a chronology of what the insurance company knew and when they knew it so that by the time you get to negotiating typically at a mediation, you are able to present to them a case that shows you know everything that they did, every corner that they cut, every piece of evidence that they ignored, and that if the case were to ever go to trial, that that would be exposed. And remember, trials are public. So if a case goes to trial, there's a decision that is reported publicly. They are not able to hide that. And it is something that when punitive damages are awarded, it is often reported widely in the media. There was a case not so long ago, in fact, just a couple months ago, where there was $1.5 million awarded against an LTD insurer because of the way that they adjudicated the claim. So it does happen. These are you know can be really significant awards. And so it is critical that that is addressed during the process of the litigation so when we get the file we do go through it very very carefully now it is not always the case that it will be there when it is there it's not always that egregious but it is always something that you need to push if it is there not necessarily because the insurance company will agree to pay a line item that says punitive damages but because if they know that they have exposure to that even if they don't want to acknowledge it They know that they have exposure. They know that if the case were to go to trial, that they would have to pay. It turns out they tend to be a lot more generous when they're assessing how far into the future the benefit should be paid. When they know that if it goes to court, they're going to have to pay punitive damages. Tamar, anything you want to add there?
2: Well, I wholeheartedly agree, of course. And what I wanted to add to... This discussion around damages was something actually that one of my clients raised with me this week and i want to protect his his confidentiality his privilege of course but just in general terms he said to me you know Tamara, you know they've they've denied my disability benefits and this has put me in a real financial strain which is only adding to my otherwise you know symptomatic condition mental health physical he's got a variety of things going on but specifically he raised look you know i'm burning through my savings I don't know how I'm going to continue to deal with my financial well-being, knowing and recognizing that I still want to pursue this disability claim. You know, he's retained us to start a legal claim. And he was wondering, look, are these other elements that, that I'm dealing with as a direct result of what the insurance company has done, which is to cut off his claim, is this going to be part of the conversation with the disability insurer? And it absolutely is. We will always include these kinds of elements. As parts of the compensation that we seek in our legal claims on behalf of our clients, and the courts have recognized that if the insurer has exacerbated, has aggravated, made worse the conditions, the health issues by virtue of their cutting off of the claim, Not only are they exposed to punitive damages, but there are other buckets of damages as well that's compensation that's awarded over and above just the LTD monthly benefit that we're pursuing. And one of those buckets is mental distress damages. And it is different than punitive damages and different than aggravated damages. And this is what James is getting at, is that you've got to have the right lawyer who understands the nuances of these damages claims. And I can tell you there was a decision last year where the court's made clear, look, this is different than the other types of damages. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be a deterrent or you know, a slapping of the wrist of the insurance company. It's meant to acknowledge that their conduct, both before they cut off the claim and after they cut off the claim, can be open to censure from the court. And it has its own criteria of damages. So I assured this client, as I do all of our listeners, that this is typically part of the conversation with insurers. I agree that there's, you know, it's a spectrum. It doesn't exist in every case, or it's not as egregious in every case, but certainly we're live to it. And it's certainly part of the conversation when we're talking about seeking compensation on behalf of our clients.
0: Hope that uh, description was good enough for you guys. We're going to return back to some more emails uh, in a remaining time of the show, but uh, now is the time you want to pick up a phone and call us. It's uh, 416-872-1010 if you feel the urge to do so. You can text a question to 71010. If not, send an email along. It'll either appear in the next little while or a future show as well, as we'll continue right here with more of the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. <music> go. If you've been uh, tuning in for the entire hour, appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can always reach out after the show to James Fireman or Tamara Gopian, both outstanding examples of the employee and the care you will get at Sanfiru to mark LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. How about that? Reaching out is simple. To have a lengthier private conversation, a chat, 1-855-821- 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. And for short, concise, easy to use, easy to navigate notes and information on Ltd. Simply go to the, this website as well. Ltdfaq.ca. It's, uh, anonymous, of course. Um, James, when the insurer does an assessment like uh, an IME, we talk about that often. Does it last few hours, whole day, half a day, six weeks? What are we looking at here? What's the, what the, is it a longer period than that? Can it be shorter?
1: Well, it depends on what we're talking about. So, right. you know, an IME is an independent medical evaluation. Typically, that's going to be done by a doctor in whatever specialty is relevant to the claim, uh, but it can be uh, done by an, an occupational therapist, for example, um, if there is an issue with your uh, ability to do a particular function, such as sitting for an extended period of time, or if you're working in a physical job, your ability to lift or push or pull or walk or what have you. Now. If it is a, an assessment by a medical doctor, typically it's going to be done in one day. It can be more, but more often than not, it's not necessary. Where it's something like a, a, a functional capacity evaluation done by an occupational therapist. It can be done in a day. I've seen that, but in my view, that's almost always inappropriate because the issue isn't so much, can you do this Or can you do this for a couple of hours? The issue is, can you do this for a full day on consecutive days or better yet, five days a week? Now, I've yet to see a functional capacity evaluation that took place over five days. Uh, I don't think any insurer is going to spend that kind of money. But it is appropriate. And I certainly have seen it done over back-to-back days so that there can at least be some assessment about what happens the day after you do this initial round of functional testing and see how your body responds to it. Because oftentimes people can push themselves on a particular day and you know they can take some medication to allow them to be able to do it in the moment but the next day they're going to pay for it. And often the next several days they're going to pay. And an IME that doesn't take that into account, that doesn't at least in some way follow up with the person to see what they're doing the day after, how they're feeling a week after is deficient. And I'm certainly going to point that out if an insurer gets an IME that fails to look at that sort of Uh, mental health IMEs I, I see more frequently take place over a couple of days as well, uh, but it, it really depends on the specialty as well as uh, the the insurer or the the person who's conducting. Tamar,
2: yeah, this is an interesting question because I don't think there's a hard and fast. And certainly, you're not going to see this in your disability policy that says, you know, we will do an IME. You know, six months into your disability, pol- you know, plan or benefits, and it's going to be this time frame, and so on and so forth. So, I, you know, anytime people reach out to us about, look, my insurer is saying they're going to put me through an IME or an independent medical assessment. I always encourage individuals to make sure that they get a lot of transparency from the insurance company, their adjuster, about where it's being held, when it's being held, how long. And bearing in mind that if it's in a region or part of the city or the you know the province, let's say, that is far away, quote unquote, and the distance is relative, but then the insurance company actually should be facilitating getting you to the IME as well. So if it's going to be like a two and a half hour drive and you've got a back and sitting limitation, then, you know, that might not be actually reasonable or feasible. But by the same token, you have to understand that, you know, you can actually have a conversation with your claims adjuster about, look, where is this going to take place? Could there be a better location somewhere closer to me? The other thing that I I think is interesting is that there can also be a dialogue around limits put on the IME between your doctor and the insurance adjuster. And I think people just sort of accept what the insurance adjusters say to them about you must attend the IME and this is how it's going to be. Uh, But it brings to mind a recent call that I had this week, actually, where this individual was being submitted through a second IME actually on a mental health condition. And he had a very clear limitation that he you know, was not really functional until the afternoon in a, in a given day. So the insurance company was really trying to force the envelope with getting his IME done in the morning. They're like, no, you have to attend at 9am. And they were very well aware and had approved and paid benefits for several years knowing that this was a very clear limitation that he was, you know, in bed until well into the afternoon and not functional at all in the mornings to be able to submit himself through this IME. Anyway, we're having some further discussions with this particular lead, but I bring it up because when it's clearly documented by your doctors that, look, this is a limitation and that limitation is being ignored in the context of an IME, That's a problem for the insurance company, okay? And that is really opening the door for them to have some challenges if they are challenged by by way of a legal claim to try and justify that this fairly routine accommodation couldn't be made. Why does the IME have to happen at nine in the morning? Why can't it happen at two in the afternoon? And this is exactly the advice I gave to this individual. And so, look, find out what's going on, engage your own medical team, understand that this is something that's part of the toolkit of an adjuster. And the outside of this is going to be an opinion generated by a doctor that's going to say something around what your conditions are and whether or not you can work and perhaps some treatment recommendations. And all of this should absolutely be shared with your own medical team so that they are aware of it, they're prepared to potentially put limits around it or provide some commentary or rebuttal responses to what it is that otherwise this one doctor has concluded uh, to the insurance company and the insurance company potentially making the decision to bring your claim to an end as a result of the IME.
1: Let me uh, let me pick up a few more points on this. Um, there's a few things I like to tell my clients when there is an IME schedule. First and foremost, when the insurance company asks for an assessment, they're entitled to that as long as the assessment is with a medical professional that has expertise that's relevant to your claim. So you know, if you have an orthopedic injury, they send you an orthopedic surgeon, they're entitled to do that but I don't get too worried about IMEs, legitimate IMEs, because I find in the LTD context, more often than not, they tend to be done fairly, not always, but it it surprises me how frequently we get an IME back after one of our clients have gone to see a doctor hired by an insurer, where the IME comes out very supportive. You know, I come from a, a background in personal injury, and in personal injury, both sides always wind up hiring experts that Tend, you tend to know what they're going to say before they write it, and it's going to say whatever you want it to, pretty much. I'm not saying I would ever tell a doctor what to say, but the doctors seem to have a pretty good idea, and that just happens a lot. That doesn't really happen so much in the LTD context. I find that the most Siamese tend to be down the middle and are legitimately reporting on what's there. Not always, but usually. The other thing I like to tell clients is that they should really – make note of the actual time they spend with the doctor. They may be there for two, three, four hours, but the doctor might only be there for 20 minutes. That's relevant information. It's useful. Um, and so it's something that you should make a note of and record if it's you know very short. The last thing is transportation. If they're asking you to go somewhere, if they want you to go to an IME, then they're going to have to pay for transportation. And so we always make sure that we get the insurer to arrange for that and make sure that you're uh, driven there and back um, so that you're not going to have an issue.
0: With that, guys, we are done for the day. I'll give you the number as we close off here, 1-855-821-5900. Reach out to James or Tamar. And the email address we always use, help at disabilityrights.ca. For more information, you can always use ltdfaq.ca as well. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.